today's first reading be taken uh, be from uh, where are we chapter 4 verses 18 to 31 Moses returns to Egypt then Moses went back to Jethro his father-in-law and said to him let me return my own people in Egypt to see if any of them are still alive Jethro said go Jethro said go and I wish you well now the Lord had said to Moses in Midian go back to Egypt for all those who wanted to kill you are dead so Moses took his wife and sons put them on a donkey and started back to Egypt and he took the staff of God in his hand the Lord said to Moses when you return to Egypt see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given to you the power to do but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go then say to Pharaoh this is what the Lord says Israel, Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. So, but Sipariah took a flint knife and cut off his son's foreskin and touched Moses' Moses's feet with it. Surely you are bridegroom of blood to me, she said. So the Lord lets, let him alone. At the time she was said bridegroom of blood, referring to his circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he met Moses at the mountain of God and kissed him. Then Moses told Aaron everything the Lord had sent to him and all the signs he had commanded to perform. Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people and they believed and when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and seen their misery they bowed down and worshipped. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, let's uh, pray for the Lord's help. Father, we thank you for your word, uh, for every page of it, for every word in it. Uh, Thank you, Father, that we can read your word and you reveal yourself to us. Father, thank you that there are easier bits and there are trickier bits. And we pray as we come to this passage that you would give us wisdom, give us understanding and help us to apply your word to our hearts. Amen. 
Well, there can be key moments in films, can't there, or in books, in stories, where all of a sudden someone's heart is laid open, where you suddenly see something deeper about a relationship. Maybe in a film, uh, there's a couple who've been going out for a while, and suddenly at some key moment, one of them says, I love you. And the person says, oh, I didn't know. Oh, I love you too. And it goes on like that. Or a key moment in the Star Wars film, when Darth Vader... Sorry, I don't want to spoil it. Says that he's Luke's father. And, okay, that's kind of a negative thing. But nevertheless, the relationship, suddenly you go, <gasps> the relationship changes. There is one of those kind of moments in the passage that was read. I wondered if you spotted it. It's not the circumcision bit. We'll come on to that. But it was there. Um, uh, uh, let me show you where it is. Moses is setting off for Egypt, having said goodbye to his father-in-law, Jethro. He's going, sent by God, to free the Israelites from slavery, and he heads off with his wife and son, and donkey, as we read, uh, and with the staff of God in his hand, as we heard about last week. And we're told what God said to Moses. There's a little recap, uh, and a little bit more, actually. We're told what God said to Moses that he should say to Pharaoh. And here is the moment where there is a little change or a little revelation about the relationship between God and his people. It's there in verses 22 and 23 when it says, Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. Israel is God's son. And more than that, God's firstborn son. And back then, being a firstborn son was a greater thing. It was a, a position of greater honor, greater privilege uh, than being another son. Firstborn son was, uh, was the top of the status in terms of uh, sons. And this is the first time in the Bible that God has called the Israelites his son. And we can look at the passage uh, in terms of the sonship uh, that runs throughout. And so we're going to have three points. They're on your order of service. They'll come up on the screen. Here you go. Who are the sons of God? How do you become a son of God? And slaves or sons. So first point, who are the sons of God? Well, I want you to see, first of all, straight away, that the answer is not everyone. God says, Israel is my firstborn son. Sorry, we're getting, getting a bit of feed, feedback on the sound system. Steve is working, working hard there. Thank you, Steve. Um, first thing to note is not everyone. Um, God says, Israel is my firstborn son. In other words, Pharaoh and the other Egyptians, they are not God's firstborn son. Now just pause on that for a moment. It may be an obvious point, particularly if, you've, uh, if you're familiar with the Bible, but sometimes people assume everyone, all people, are in the same relationship with God. That all people are in God's family merely by being born, merely by having been created that all people are children of God. There's this kind of family of mankind mentality, and we are all re relate to God, and he is our fa father of all. 
And yet, as we read the Bible, as you read through, as you get to this point, it, it is worth spotting, isn't it? That is not the way the Bible presents God's relationship with mankind. In Genesis, we see God choosing a people. He chooses the Israelites, Abraham's descendants who become the Israelites. He chooses them to be the people he will make his promises to, that he will come into covenant with. We'll talk about that more in a moment. He says, they will be my people. And in the New Testament, we see it it is the church who are chosen by God to be the people who, who trust in God's promises. Now, it is true, God loves all he has made. You can look elsewhere. Psalm 145, verse 9, for instance, talks about the fact that God loves all he has made. It's not that he, is, it, that he hates the rest. He loves all he has made. But the family, and particularly sonship, is not one that is just used uh, in a broad brush way of the whole of mankind. No, it is applied to those God chooses. God, uh, God chooses. Um, and here it is the Israelites. Now you might ask, is that unfair of God? Is it unfair that God sort of sees the whole of humanity and says, those people will be my sons? No, not unfair. If you want to look further on this, you could look at Romans chapter 9. Uh, where Paul deals with this specifically, the fact that God chooses some and not others. Uh, And actually, this is what what it says, Romans 9, 14 to 15. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? And the context is exactly this. Is he unjust to pick some and not others? Not at all, Paul says. For he says to Moses, not at this point, but at another point, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Saying, I'm God. I can can have mercy on who I want. But notice it is mercy that is needed for any to become sons. Because the context in Romans is to say, don't forget, of course, the whole of humanity has turned away from God, has rejected God. And therefore, the amazement is not that God chooses some, but that God chooses any. And it is his mercy that he would choose some out of, the, out of humanity to say, yes, they will be my people, they will be my son. So it is not unfair, it is not unjust, it is merciful, it is compassionate, and he chooses to have mercy. So who is a son of God? Well, just for the moment, just spot, it is not everyone but those God chooses. Now, just a word, just as a little aside, on the fact that we're talking about sonship. Uh, that we are saying that people are sons of God. Maybe that strikes you as sexist. Um, uh, Those who trust in Jesus, the Bible tells us, are sons of God. Actually, whether you're male or female, you're a son of God. Maybe you feel that's unfair. Maybe the women amongst us feel uncomfortable at being called sons. Uh, Well, very often in the New Testament, actually in modern translations, they will translate it sons and daughters. And and I don't think that's a completely wrong thing to do. It's not what the original says, but uh, often they're trying to, you know, make you feel more comfortable on this. Which is okay. I I don't think it should bother you actually at being called a son, because, um, as I said, the firstborn son in their culture, in Old Testament and New Testament times, the firstborn son, that was a position of, of, of greater honor. And therefore, actually, for that to be applied to a whole church family, men and women, actually is to lift everyone up to the same status. Uh, It is actually saying, actually, it's a great privilege to be uh, a son, to be an eldest son, to be a firstborn son. Uh, 
And actually, if you're still feeling uncomfortable on this, don't, don't worry, because everyone should feel uncomfortable at some point. Because yes, we are, if we're trusting in Jesus, we're called sons. And women, you may feel uncomfortable with that. But don't forget, men have to struggle with the end of the book of Revelation, where the church is called the bride of Christ. So everyone feels uncomfortable at some point, all right? We're just going to get used to that and actually then say, what's the significance of this? What's the meaning of it? So I hope that allays that, that, that concern. So who are sons? First off, it's not everyone. It's those God chooses. Second, how do you become a son? Now, this is where we come to the curious incident of verses 24 to 26. Uh, and many find this um, just so odd, they kind of just skip over it. It's, it is a very striking moment, isn't it? Here you've got Moses going to the Egyptians, sent by God. He's reluctant, but he goes, and he's now obeying God. And you get that striking moment, verse 24, at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. Is that striking? Is that weird? God, yes, thank you. It, it is weird, isn't it? God's just met with Moses, burning bush, commissioned him, persuaded him. Yes, go, go, go. And he's going, all right, I'll go. And then now God's going to kill him. It's weird, isn't it? And even more weird that Zipporah, his wife, knows that the thing to do is to circumcise their son and touch Moses' feet with the foreskin. I mean, what is going on there? And then, beautifully, after that, it just sort of carries on as if nothing has happened. You go, what? Uh-huh. <laughs> okay, what's going on? Well, some have said this is simply about obedience. Clearly, Moses should have circumcised his son. You know, he should have done it. God had commanded that's what should happen. Um, and therefore, maybe this is just about obedience. Maybe, although I, I'm not convinced that's quite all that's going on here. After all, Moses has disobeyed God previously, and God did not, at that point, be about to kill him. I think there's something more going on here to do with circumcision. So what is circumcision all about? Okay, I'm not going to go into the biology of it, the, the mechanics of it. What's the significance of circumcision? It is about being part of the covenant people of God. Now don't don't mist over, don't sort of drift off there. Sometimes when people start talking about covenant, people drift a little. Don't. Okay, don't. This is very, very important. You see, God had said to, to his people that he was going to enter into a covenant with them. A covenant is a, a binding promise. And he had said this, and we noticed this in chapter 3 uh, and, cha and earlier in chapter 4, that God has talked a lot about being the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's because it's referring to the covenant that he made with Abraham. Now, like I say, a covenant is a binding promise. Uh, we don't talk a lot about covenants. The, what we do have as a covenant in our culture is marriage. So when, uh, when there's a marriage, there is a binding promise, isn't there? The, the bride and groom make promises to one another. And there is a sign of that covenant, which is a ring that is given. Often two rings, at least one ring has to be given in, in our culture, the way that we would do things. And those promises are made to one another. Now, the promise that God made to Abraham and then to Isaac and to Jacob in this covenant was very one-sided, 
basically God doing all the promise making. He promised, if you remember, that he would make Abraham and his descendants into a great nation, he would give them a land, and that he would bless them. You remember those three things, they're often the things that are picked out. Uh, uh, and the blessing is, I will bless those who bless you, I'll curse those who curse you, and all the world, all the peoples of the world will be blessed through you. And this were God's promises. And the sign of the covenant, like the wedding ring, was circumcision that Abraham was to apply to his sons and their sons, and it was to go on down through the generations. And circumcision was a sign that these people were trusting God's promises. They were part of God's promised people, the people that that he had made these promises to. And they're saying, yes, we will do this sign of circumcision to show we're trusting God's promises. That's what it was all about. It was always about trusting God's promises and God fulfilling his promises to these people. Now, Being part of God's people was never just about being biologically descended from Abraham. It was always about trusting those promises and with circumcision as the sign of it. So it wasn't just about being descended biologically, it was about trust and therefore applying the circumcision. And of course, circumcision without the trust was no good which is why later in the Old Testament, God calls on his people to circumcise their hearts in Deuteronomy 30 and Jeremiah 4. In other words, don't just have the sign of, of the covenant, believe in the promises, trust God, and have the sign as well. So that's what circumcision was. It was a sign of their faith in God and their trust in God. Now, if you want to read more about that, you can read more in Romans 4. Verses 9 to 12, you can make a note of that if you want, follow that up later. So, how significant was it that Moses had not circumcised his son? What does that say? That's a bit like if you've got a married couple where one of them takes off the wedding ring and deliberately leaves it behind and goes. In other words, they're saying, I'm not a part of this anymore. And that's what it was, I think, with Moses here. That by not circumcising his son, he is, I mean, that's a conscious decision that he has made there. He's saying, I'm not a part of that people anymore. I'm not trusting God for his promises. And that is a huge deal. To change the analogy back to sonship, and I do think sonship is a big theme in this this little bit of verses. After all, sonship is coming up a lot, isn't it? God said, Israel are his son. He said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh, if you don't let my son go, I'll kill your son. And now Moses' son is not circumcised. I think the issue here is, you could put it in terms of sonship, is Moses, are you part of God's son? If you were, you'd be trusting the promises and you'd have circumcised your son. And if you aren't Moses, you're in big trouble. And that is still true today, isn't it? If we're not part of the covenant, part of God's people, actually, if we're not trusting his promises, we're in big trouble. And yet it is Zipporah, this is fascinating as well, it's Zipporah, Moses' wife, who is not an Israelite, who knows what to do. 
Why it's not Moses, we're not totally sure. There's some speculation about that, but it wasn't. It was Zipporah, and maybe that in itself is significant. That someone here who isn't biologically descended from Abraham is saying, we will apply the sign of the covenant to our son. We will trust God. We will trust his promises. We are in. And she was, even though she wasn't biologically descended from Abraham. How did they become sons of God? How did they become in? It wasn't just through biology. It wasn't through biology. It wasn't through an empty ritual, but through trusting God's promises and therefore taking hold of his covenant expressed in the covenant signs. How do we become children of God? Not through biology, not through empty ritual, but by trusting God's promises and taking hold of his covenant. But for us, we're in the new covenant in Jesus' blood, which is a bit different from this that Moses and God's people there were, were, were dealing with. So we don't have to deal with circumcision, which is a good thing. But the promises are made to us that if we will come to Jesus... And again, all the promises are on God's side. He makes all the promises, a bit like with, with Abraham. All the promises, God saying, I will do this, I will do this for you, I will do this for you. Is that through Jesus' blood, we can be forgiven and become sons of God, become part of his people to whom the promises were given. And we express that trust, that coming into God's people through the signs of the covenant, through baptism, and communion, both of which point to Jesus' death, his resurrection, his actions, his promises, all centering around those historical events. So, what's the application? This is great, isn't it? You're getting application from Zipporah circumcising his son, touching the, the foreskin on Moses' feet. Here's the application. It is, are you in or not? Are you in the covenant the covenant people of God, to whom God has made his promises through Jesus, through Jesus' blood. Are you in or not? If we're not in, actually, that is a big problem. Because if we're not in the covenant under Jesus' blood, then our sins are not dealt with. We're not God's sons. And there is, there is trouble for us later on. But if we're in, we're covered by Jesus' blood shed for us. And if you are in, on the basis of that trust, have you taken hold of the covenant signs of baptism and communion? Now, you might have more questions on that. Come and talk to me afterwards. Okay, lastly. Moses meets Aaron, tells him everything. And they go to the elders of Israel and tell them everything about how God is going to rescue his people. And this was the big moment Moses was nervous about, but it all goes really well. He shows them the signs God gave them, which we thought about last week. The signs of the staff to the snake and the leprous hand and the water to blood. And they believe and they worship the Lord. It could not have gone better. But then they go to Pharaoh and now we're going to have the next part of the reading. So Hesse is going to come and read for us from uh, Exodus chapter 5. Thank you, Hesse. Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, 
This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to your work. Then Pharaoh said, Look at the people of the land. They're now numerous, and you are stopping them from working. The next day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. You're no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They're lazy. That's why they're crying out, let's go and sacrifice to our God. Make their word harder for the people so they keep working and pay no attention to lies. Then the slave drivers and the overseers went out and said to the people, this is what Pharaoh says, I will not give you any more straw. Go and get your own straw wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced at all. So the people scattered all over Egypt to gather stubble to use for straw. And slave drivers kept pressing them, saying, complete the work required of you for each day, just as you had straw. And Moses' slave drivers beat the Israelite overseers they had appointed, demanding, why haven't you met your quota of bricks yesterday or today as before? Then the Israelite overseers went and appealed to Pharaoh. Why have you treated your servants this way? Your servants are given no straw, yet we are told, make bricks. Your servants are being beaten, but the fault is your own people. Pharaoh said, lazy, that's what you are, lazy. That's why you keep saying, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now get to work. You will not be given any straw yet you must produce your full quota of bricks. The Israelite overseers realized they're in trouble when they were told you were not to reduce the number of bricks required of you for each day. When they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them. And they said, may the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us so obnoxious to Pharaoh and his official, officials, and to put a sword in their hand to kill us. This is the word of the Lord. So, our last point, slaves or sons. So God's people, his son, are in slavery, as we've seen. And it seems like when Moses went to Pharaoh to say, uh, let my people go, uh, that Pharaoh wasn't ready for this. Oh, sorry, that the people weren't ready for Pharaoh's reaction because he makes their life far worse. 
And notice again that Pharaoh is opposing God and is in God's place. Earlier in chapter 4, God had told Moses to say to Pharaoh to let his people go so that they may worship God. Literally, it is to serve God. But Pharaoh wants them serving him. The people are being oppressed by a terrible slave master who is taking God's place over them. And when he's threatened with losing his slaves, he makes their lives a misery. He becomes even more cruel. He says they won't be provided with straw and must make the same number of bricks. Now there is an application for us here because the Exodus is a pattern for our liberation from a far worse slavery, a slavery to sin. Sin, our rejection of God. Jesus tells us in John's Gospel that all who sin are a slave to sin. We don't just do the occasional bad thing, we are slaves to it. And our slave master of sin is a cruel master, promising much but always making life harder. We seem to have regular uh, quotes from uh, Philip Ryken, his book. We'll have another one today. Here we go. So page 100... You don't need to know which page. That's for me. Anyway, here's the quote. Sin is the harshest of... It always demands more and more from us, while giving us less and less in return. The more the lustful man indulges his fantasies, the less happy he becomes, and the more sex he craves. The more the selfish woman gets, the less content she grows, and still she wants more. Satan never loosens his grip. He is always busy tightening the chains of our captivity. It is always more bricks and less straw, for it is the very nature of sin to seek to control the sinner's whole life. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. John 8. And notice how the Israelites react. Pharaoh makes things harder for them. And where do they look to for for help, for, for, for relief? They look to Pharaoh. They appeal to him when he is the one making life worse for them. And they complain against Moses and Aaron, though they're the ones sent by God to free them. It is always the devil's ploy to make God seem to be the bad guy and sin to look to be the way of comfort and salvation. God's way looks to be the oppressive way, doesn't it? When it comes to what you watch, how you speak, that you've got to reign in your tongue, you've got to follow his way in relationships. It looks to be the oppressive way and the devil's way of living for yourself, of doing whatever you feel, though actually it's harmful, looks like the way of freedom. Our slave master is cruel and what we need is a saviour, one greater than Moses to rescue us. What we need is Jesus, God's son, to set us free, to be his sons, to be God's sons. It is a battle, a struggle, but thankfully Jesus is a great saviour. In John it says, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. We cannot free ourselves. We need to come to him to be set free. Maybe you're suffering under the slave master of sin. Maybe you can't see a way out. He seems to have got a grip on you. And it feels like you can never be free. Come to Jesus. Ask him to set you free. 
And it's worth remembering the three tenses of our salvation. If we come to Jesus, he has freed us from the penalty of sin. He is freeing us from the power of sin, that cruel slave master. It is an ongoing thing in our lives and will one day free us from the presence of sin. I'm going to lead us in a prayer. Heavenly Father, we praise you that through faith we can become sons of God. Through faith in Jesus and in the covenant you've made through him, through his blood, which we celebrate as we take communion in a few moments. Father, help us. Help us where we are struggling under sin at the moment, under that slave master. Set us free, we pray. We cry to you for freedom and praise you for the forgiveness there is in Christ and the power to defeat sin. Amen.